Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Thomas McKean. He was a little man, but he was very well hung. And he had no problem achieving or maintaining an erection, which was pointed right at me. That and more. But before that, you gotta know there's some big Risk live shows coming up. On February 4th, we're in San Francisco. Our first Risk live show in San Francisco was all the way back in 2011. And I am so grateful for so many unforgettable nights there. We just love that city. And the cast we have for February 4th is Yamanika Saunders, James Urbaniak, Shalewa Sharp, and Daniel Van Kirk. Oh my God, I am so excited about it. And then in March, Risk is in Philly. Philadelphia is practically like a sister city to us now, or a cousin town, or a red-headed step uncle Opolis. <laughs> the point is, you know, Philly is is like family. Risk loves Philly like family. And we're at World Cafe Live on March 2nd. Now, we've had some amazing story pitches coming in for the show already, so get ready for it. And all you need to know about any Risk Live show is at risk-show.com slash tour. We'll be right back. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com sale. That's hellotend.com sale. And book your free consult today. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Now here's the show.
kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, this is Salah Ragab and the Cairo Jazz Band behind me now. And as you've already heard, we're calling this week's episode By the Skin of Our Teeth, two stories where uh, people are trying their best to hang on, in one case figuratively, and in one case literally. A little later, we're going to hear a fantastic story by Kelly Dunham that she told at our live show at Caveat in New York City this past November. But first, a story by Thomas McKean. We haven't heard from Thomas on the podcast since 2015, so it's overdue. We're thrilled to have him back. So, without further ado, here he is, Thomas McKean now, with a story we call... The Pyramid Scheme. Showing up at twilight was the only smart thing I did that night. Going to Cairo, Egypt in summer, in the middle of August, was definitely not smart. I'd say it was 110 degrees in the shade, except I never seemed to find any shade. And I should have known better. Even though this was over 20 years ago, I was already well-traveled. I'd been to a few dozen countries on four different continents, even living abroad. But somehow, it never occurred to me to check the weather report for Cairo in August. So there I was, staying in probably the world's filthiest hotel. But I met a nice German guy named Axel. So one evening, we decided to go look at the pyramids. We hailed a cab. And before we had arrived at Giza, I'd heard all about the driver's five children and his issues with his ramshackle Peugeot. Because I'm the kind of person I like to talk to people. So when we arrived, I gave him a very, very handsome tip, which kind of surprised Axel. He said, that was a large tip. And I said, well, I'm a big tipper. Anyway, when you arrive in a tourist destination in Egypt, you're immediately surrounded by guides. And it's actually a career that is looked down on by other Egyptians, but it's how they earn money. So there were 15 or 20 guys hoping to lead us around the pyramids. And the question is, do you pick them or do they pick you? So I looked at all these guys and there was one I felt sorry for. He was a lot older than the other ones. Other ones were at 20 and 30. He was between 50 and 60. And he was very short. I'd say 5'2 or 3. I'm 5'10 and I towered over him. And he was wearing this filthy old jalaba 
It was gray, and I had the idea that once upon a time, it had been blue. He looked as though he'd been wandering out in the desert sun for about a hundred years. His face was one big red wrinkle. So I felt sorry for the guy, so I smiled at him. He smiled back, and I thought, well, that's good. It's good to have a friendly guy, because some are taciturn and grouchy. And I also thought, well, he's older. Maybe he knows a thing or two. So we picked him. Right away from the depths of this dirty gray gelato that once had been blue, he produced a little key. And we walked to the side of the pyramid where nobody else was, and he unlocked a tiny door in the side. We entered it, and we crawled through a long tunnel that seemed to slope downwards. And he had a little flashlight that he would flicker occasionally. We entered one room, too small to stand in, and then entered yet another tunnel, following it downward. And that finally opened onto another room in which stood a sarcophagus. And he said, for a little more money, we could lie in it. And this seemed pretty exciting to me. And Axel went first, the German guy. And he was about 6'2". He was a tall guy. So he had to lie down with his knees up. He could barely fit. Then it was my turn. And even I had to scrunch a bit to lie in it. And for a minute or two, our guide turned off his flashlight. So there I was, lying in the darkness, with I don't know how many million tons of stone above my head, where a dead pharaoh had presumably been lying centuries ago. It was an amazing moment. And then the guy turned back on his light, and he, he seemed to be smiling broadly. And again, I thought, oh, what a friendly fellow. And then I thought, well, maybe he's just very proud of his heritage. Stupidly on my part, it did not occur to me that we were kind of defiling the sarcophagus by lying in it as tourists. Anyway, naivety can help sometimes. When we were done defiling the sarcophagus, we crawled back out through these tunnels. And when we reached the outside world, night had fallen. When we had arrived at the pyramids, the sun was just starting to set and the half-moon was just starting to rise. Now it was higher in the sky, and the sky was dark. Our guide told us that the grounds of the pyramids were now officially closed. But if we paid him a little more money, we could stay longer, and we could climb the pyramids. This seemed like a good idea. So up we started. Now the pyramids I've learned since are, I think around 450 feet tall. That's around 30 stories. And they're made, as everybody knows, of, of layers of stone. And each stone is roughly, I'd say five or six feet tall. And the way you climb them is, there's a little gap between each stone and what's where the, the mortar has been worn away to make a makeshift staircase. So you climb up between certain stones, and not every stone has enough space or mortar that's been worn away. So you climb up to the next level, you might go left, you might go right, and he knew where to go until the next little so-called staircase was. 
And you also had to be aware that in many spots on the pyramid, the stones had completely crumbled or fallen away. So there'd be gaps two or three or four stones high, which you had to go around. Up we climbed, and it was beautiful. The night wind was blowing, these large black birds that might have been buzzards were flapping around. All was quiet, and it was finally cool. The desert cools down quickly. For the first time that day, I was comfortable. And there I was, it was magical, it was mysterious, climbing the last existing of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Up we climbed, higher and higher, and it was beautiful. The half moon was rising higher. I could see the lights of Cairo in the distance. Up we climbed, higher and higher. I'd say we are roughly halfway up the pyramid when I suddenly remembered something. And no, it wasn't that you shouldn't be climbing up and damaging ancient landmarks. It was that I'm scared of heights. I'm the kind of person, if I'm walking on the street and I look up at a terrace five flights up and imagine being on it looking down, I feel sick to my stomach. So there I was halfway up the pyramid in the beginnings of a total panic. And anybody who has a phobia knows they're not entirely rational. All I could think of was, I'm gonna fall off this pyramid and die. You wouldn't fall off and die, you'd fall off and get injured. But when I looked out, the way it's built, I couldn't see the level below. I just saw darkness, I saw space. And all I felt was fear. My legs were slowly turning to rubber. My heart was starting to pound. I could barely breathe, but I was too embarrassed to admit it. I kind of liked Axel. I didn't want to appear like such an idiot being scared of heights and forgetting about it. So I, I, I kept on climbing higher and higher until I could no longer lie to myself anymore. I was in the middle of a full-fledged total panic attack. I knew I couldn't take another step. I said very suddenly, I have to sit down. You go on without me. So Axel bounded off and the guide following him, he turned around and smiled at me and I was glad for the sympathy and figured he'd probably seen other tourists who were scared of heights. So there I'm sitting on the side of the pyramid my heart is exploding out of my chest. I can't breathe. And I tell myself, okay, breathe in slowly, hold your breath, exhale. Breathe in, hold, exhale. I said to myself, I'm gonna control my fear. Well, I might as well have tried to control the Nile. The more I tried, the more panicked I got. My breath was shallow, rapid, my heart was pounding. And then I thought, okay, I can do this. I'm gonna stand up and I will be able to stand and, and get out of here or do something. So I stood up and at that point, my legs weren't rubber anymore. They were like pieces of overcooked pasta. There was nothing to them. I just fell down on my ass. There I am on the side of the pyramid holding on for dear life, 
my feet and my hands firmly on the stone. And I'm thinking, oh God, I clearly can't climb up the pyramid, but I can't even climb down it either. They're going to have to call for the red crescent and they're going to come with a stretcher. They're going to carry me down the side. I'm going to be first embarrassed and then I'm going to be arrested for trespassing and end up in an Egyptian jail. I'm sitting there trying to focus, trying not to imagine falling off and dying when the guide reappears. He scampers along the side of the pyramid like a little mountain goat looking happier than ever to see me. As he approaches, he lifts up his dirty jalaba higher and higher and higher. And he's wearing nothing beneath it. And he was a little man, but he was very well hung. And he had no problem achieving or maintaining an erection, which was pointed right at me. He gave another smile and he leapt on me. Well, clearly I was faced with a quandary. I thought, okay, if I lift my hands and my feet off the pyramid to defend myself, I'm going to fall off and die. And then I thought, okay, if I keep them down on the ground so I don't fall off and die, I'm going to be mauled. Neither option seemed very attractive to me. Okay, I have another idea, I thought. I'm going to rip off his jalaba and throw it away, then I'll have to go get it. And then I thought, well, that might give a mixed message. So I, I dispensed with that idea. So I thought, okay, I'm going to kick him and, and hit him. I don't care if I fall, but I'm going to do that first. And then I have the thought, okay, I'm about seven, eight inches taller than this guy, a lot bigger. If I kick and hit him too hard, he's going to fall to his death. And I'll be in this same Egyptian jail, not for trespassing, but for murder. So then I finally have the idea, okay, maybe I'll just scream. So I start screaming, no, no, but that seems to amuse him. And he redoubles his efforts, you know, trying to kiss and fondle me. Now, I'm no prude. If it had been Axel who had suddenly decided to be romantic, even in that case, I would have waited till I was over my full-fledged panic attack and on solid ground. And I'm not averse to having unexpected sex in unlikely locations with unpredictable people, but this was not the time, nor the place, nor the person. So I finally came up with a solution, I thought. I would keep one foot firmly on the ground and one hand firmly on the pyramid and fight him off with the other hand and the other foot. So I kicked and shoved, which he just seemed to find part of the fun. And then unexpectedly, he scampered off. And I thought, okay, he's gotten the message. And if he comes back, I'll do it again. I will dissuade him and hopefully neither of us will fall to our deaths. He came running back out of nowhere. And this time he had his jalaba kind of draped around his shoulders. So I was seated still because I couldn't stand. He was standing. So meaning his hard-on was aimed right towards my mouth. 
So I quickly stopped screaming, shut my mouth, averted my head, and I did the only thing I could. I now put both hands on the side of the pyramid, kind of to give me more traction. I kept my right foot solidly on the stone, and he presented, as I had mentioned, a nice, sizable target. So with my left foot, I kicked out as hard as I could right in his crotch. He gave a howl of pain and ran off. And as he ran off, he looked back at me and he shot me the most disappointed look as he just could not believe I'd be so inconsiderate. He was gone. I was alone, still in a panic. And now I had a new worry. I thought, oh God, he probably has a lot of friends who are guides lurking around the pyramid. They're all going to come back. Or else he's going to tell them that I had attacked him and I'll be in this Egyptian jail, not for murder, but for illicit sexual activity on a landmark. So I said to myself, I have got to get out of here. And remember, I still couldn't stand. I couldn't walk. So what I did was I turned over, I lay on my stomach, and I began inching backwards towards the rim, towards the end of the stone on which I was lying. First my feet were over, then up to my knees, and then up to my hips. So my feet up to my hips were angled down the side of the pyramid, and my stomach and my arms were ahead of me, holding flat. So I was kind of like an L. And from that angle, hanging down from my hips down, my feet were not touching the stone beneath me. And I just thought, it's now or never, and I gave a push and I dropped, praying I wouldn't die. Luckily, I landed on the stone beneath me where I had to repeat the same routine of crawl, drop, crawl, drop, drop. At this point, bats started flying around me. So now I had a new fear that they would bite me and I would get rabies on the way down. And when I was in an Egyptian jail, I would die of rabies. On and on I went. And I was probably more than halfway up the pyramid, meaning I had 200 feet of crawling, dropping, crawling, dropping, and expecting to die. Crawling and dropping down 25 stories of a building. Down, down, down. At one point, I heard a siren in the distance, and I thought, oh God, the guide has called the police. And I kept racing to hear a voice over a loudspeaker say, move slowly away from the pyramid. Luckily, the siren kept on wailing and vanished. I kept crawling, dropping, crawling, dropping. I couldn't breathe. I thought I'd have a heart attack. My heart was beating away. And then suddenly when I crawled and I dropped, I landed on sand. I was back in the desert. I had escaped. I was alive. I fell on the cool sand. I almost kissed it. And I looked up at the pyramid and I saw what I had forgotten coming down. All those areas I had mentioned where there were huge gaps. Luckily for me, just by dumb luck, I had missed them. If I had crawled and dropped in one of those, I would have fallen 20, 30 feet. I probably would have still be up there starving to death. There I lay on the sand, 
so happy to be alive. And after a while, Axel and the guide appeared. The guide looked happy as a lark, all seemed forgiven. He was smiling away. Axel looked happy too. He said, I was smoking two cigarettes on top of the pyramid. It was a beautiful view. And I thought, oh God, I'll never get to see that view. And then I decided, judging how relaxed Axel was, that nothing had happened to him on top of the pyramid. And I guessed it was because he's six foot two, and that kind of discouraged the guide from an attack. Also, he was kind of a stern person, so I doubt he had smiled at the guide. And also, he was clearly not paralyzed by a panic attack, so was not a sitting duck. And then I had the weird thought, maybe the guide had thought that I was hoping he would come back, that maybe that's why I had stopped halfway up the pyramid, hoping to have an assignation with him. Now Axel said it was such a good tour that I think we should give the guide an extra large tip. Not on your life, I said. But if I, you are saying to me that you are a very big tipper. Not this time, I said. Definitely not this time. Kevin's like all of a sudden being, I don't know, what's the word? Like discreet about the story that I told on a podcast. So I don't remember the whole story now. I'm kind of forgetting the details, but it ends with me getting fucked up the ass with a little tiny baseball bat. So you can imagine why I forgot the beginning. But (laughs) 
so that was on the podcast, and I was like, oh, who listens to podcasts anyway? And uh, it was it was back in the day. And then I was spe- I'm a nurse, and I was speaking at a nursing conference, and then. <laughs> I got done speaking, and this woman's like, oh, my God, I heard you on the Risk podcast. And I'm like, oh, my God, my worlds are like, crossing each day. Oh, yeah, that podcast where I talked about getting fucked up the ass with a baseball bat. Not a full-size baseball bat, though, in case you guys are worried about this state of my asshole now. All right. Okay, so in 2007, I was on a flight to the homophobic and cultural wasteland that is Northern Florida. Uh, This was against the advice of everyone. I was on my way to Florida to help my mom take care of my very ill stepfather and help him do all the paperwork to get on hospice because it's America and there's a lot of paperwork if you wanna die. Uh, So this was against the best interest of everyone in my life. You know, my friends were against it, my exes, my therapists, I think I had two at the time. Uh, My ex's therapist would have been against it as well. And the reason is, seven years previous to that time, I had come out to my mom. Now, I came out to my mom with a card that I bought at the dollar store. Now, I know you Gen Z folks, like they have like rainbow Hallmark cards now. It's like, congratulations, I'm a pansexual. I don't know if it's a congratulations, I'm a pansexual, but congratulations, you're a pansexual. And hey, you just had your first shot of tea. Okay, that's, I'm so happy for you Gen Z, queers of Gen Z. But all we had was dollar store cards uh, when I came out to my mom. And so I don't think I thought it through all the way because I had a serious girlfriend at the time. And so I had started to get you know, that it was just like there was a lot of things missing from the conversation if I was not out to my mom, you know? So I bought a card, and it was just in blue script on the outside. It said, thinking of you. (laughs) And that's technically true. I was thinking of her. I was thinking, gee, in a conversation, one of us is going to have to be uncomfortable. For a long time, it's been me. Now it's going to be you. (laughs) So I mailed that off to her. Uh... Now, I did not think, my mom was like very evangelical, like, we love Jesus, yes we do, we love Jesus, how about you, people? I knew she wasn't going to be one of those parents that like, you know, immediately joins PFLAG or like, you know, marches in the pride parade giving out free hugs. I did not think that, but I did not think the response that I would get, which was um, a few weeks later, I got an envelope in the mail and it wasn't heavy enough even for a dollar store coming out card, uh, not even a letter. And I opened it up and there's just all these little tiny pieces of paper that fell out of it. And to convey her subtle displeasure, my mom had ripped up my birth certificate and sent it to me. (laughs) Anyway, the problem with that is, well, you guys already probably know the problem with it, right? You know why that's bad? Great, that's great, okay. I know she doesn't like gayness, but isn't that the gayest shit you've ever heard? That's like what a fucking drag queen would do on stage. That is some gay fucking shit. Oh, rip it up inside. It's so dramatic. Uh, and also, like, I feel like that's not how this works. You know, you can't annul your relationship with your kids, right? I mean, I guess that's what disowning is. But without proper documentation, additional proper documentation, I did not feel like I could be disowned. So in one way, she created an emotional problem. But in another very real way, she also created a logistical problem because it was the certified copy of my birth certificate. 
So that meant uh, I had to go to the county clerk's office in Chicago, where I was born, uh, and I, you know, brought the pieces, you know, and uh, he looks at me and looks at the pieces and looks at me and looks at the pieces, and he goes, mm, points with his chin. He's like, yeah, we get a lot of that from people who look like you. <laughs> well, what that tells me is that my mom was not being as unique and clever as she thought she was being, right? You know, and time had passed, and my mom had watched a lot of Ellen, I guess, and talked to her hairdresser. And so we had built, to some extent, a relationship. But as one of my friends pointed out, she's like, yeah, you're like exchanging Christmas presents relationship, not take care of her asshole husband, which they're not wrong. So my mom was married to a number of alcoholics that basically, not all at once, although that would be so awesome. That were basically, to me, interchangeable, you know. My, my sister always said that my mom stood at the door of a rehab with, like, a trench coat going, would you like some meatloaf? <laughs> Luring men out of the rehab. But basically, they were interchangeable. But her, the current husband, he kind of had it taken to a new level, you know. He was a retired Army colonel that had not been active duty for two decades, yet everyone in his life, including my mom, called him the colonel. Yeah, you know that person, right? Uh, except for when she, her affectionate nickname for him, which was TC, which stands for the Colonel. <laughs> I asked her if we could call her TM for the mom, but she did not think that was funny at all. <laughs> and now I'm going to tell you something that you nice, possibly mostly straight people, it's going to be hard for you to hear. Are you ready for it? So he, t he told me, I was obviously not out to him. He told me that um, when he was making, like, planning um, battles, that he intentionally sent the sissies off to be sacrificed. And, yes, that's like a kind of rude, obnoxious thing to say, but it also sounds like it's not true, right? Because everyone I know who was ever called sissy in high school, they would not be sacrificed. It would be like a bloodbath. Those are the toughest fucking people in the world. So it seemed more like testosterone-fueled bragging, but still, like, bone-chilling, nevertheless. And one of my friends was like, well, I hope you don't feel obligated to go help your mom with Colonel. And I was like, I don't feel obligated. Like, I am the youngest of five or seven, depending on how you're counting. Uh, and they're all like, we're, you know, like these nice midwife, like my girlfriend used to do uh, imitation of me. Hi, my name is Kelly Dunham. I'm from Wisconsin. Would you like my lunch? Uh, and that's how all my brothers, we're all like a healthy pants, you know? So I knew if I didn't go, that somebody would go. But in 2005, my um, partner at the time had a recurrence of the ovarian cancer that she'd actually been battling for a while. And earlier in 2007, the year that I was going to Florida, she had died. So the previous December, I had spent trying to get her on hospice. And we had so much great, amazing support. Friends were always bringing meals and picking up meds for us. And there were always folks at the house. But at the same time, there were just these nights where she had pain that was out of control, nausea that was out of control, or she'd wake me up from a solid street going, oh my God, the only thing left for me is suffering and death. Which like, what the fuck do you even say to that? It's not like a kid that wakes up from a nightmare and just be like, oh, it was just a bad dream. It's real life, you know? And even though we had such amazing, amazing support, the loneliness of that was so intense. And I would have given anything if there could have been somebody who had been through the same thing to sit with me. So obviously, if I could, I wanted to do that for my mom. So I made the plans to go to Florida. And um, 
Colonel was sent home from the hospital with the diagnosis was old age, was being old as hell, uh, chronic alcoholism, and then he had hydrocephalus from World War II shrapnel that had been pressing on his spinal cord for 40 years. So he had functional dementia. So most people, when they get dementia, they forget like, oh, you know, their kids' names or, you know, where they live or what year it is, but Colonel forgot he was an asshole. Because, I think because he forgot where the scotch was, but uh, yeah. So I walked in the door. This is a man who, you know, very ornery his whole life. He's like, hey, soldier, hey, biggest compliment ever, right? <laughs> hey, soldier, what you doing? I love that haircut. It's just like mine. <laughs> so uh, we knew that Colonel would not live till Christmas, and so my mom put up the Christmas tree early, and he was so sweet about it. He couldn't even follow a sitcom anymore, so he'd say, Nance, just, just put the tree on. And then she'd put on the tree, and we'd sit together on, you know, the leather couch, and he would say, that's a hell of a tree, Nance. That is one fucking hell of a tree. <laughs> so he died um, shortly before Christmas. And after that, there wasn't as much to do. There weren't the caregiving duties. And so I just sat next to my mom. Sometimes we talked, but not that much. And she'd just say, I just want you to know I really appreciate you being here. So last year, when she was getting ready to move into an inpatient hospice, she called me. Yeah, there's three deaths, sorry. <laughs> um, she called me and asked if I would be there with her when she died. Um, and I was like, yeah, that makes sense. I'd want, I mean, I want to be at my deathbed too. I've been around death a lot, you know? So uh, I agreed. And when I arrived, uh, the CNA was like, oh, yeah, you're the favorite. And I was like, oh, really? <laughs> the favorite? Because of the whole ripped up birth certificate thing, you know? But we had, in time, we had become friends, you know? We couldn't really be mother-daughter after sharing that same painful experience, but we thought we could be friends, you know, friends that never mentioned the whole birth certificate thing. <laughs> and then when neighbors started dropping by to give us food in the aftermath of Christmas and Colonel's death, I overheard my mom saying, oh, yeah, Kelly, she's a widow too. Her wife died this year. Now, technically, Mm, Heather was my mistress, not my wife. <laughs> but I didn't feel like it was the right time to quibble about details. Because I had done the pre-death stuff, uh, my siblings did all the post-death stuff, and they cleaned out my mom's apartment. And my mom wasn't much of a pack rat, and she had a big old bunch of kids, so she didn't keep much stuff from any given child. But my sister mailed me something. She found in the apartment and came in a big manila envelope, and inside the middle envelope, there was one of those green hanging file folders. And inside of it were like my old report cards, like one or two old report cards, and a uh, Hartford Times Herald picture of me when I had won an anti-vandalism contest in third grade. <laughs> the, the, the slogan was, be a deer, don't pass the buck. Vandalism stops with you. Like the most Wisconsin anti-vandalism slogan ever. <laughs> and then there also, also in that same hanging file folder was the thinking of you coming out day card. And when I looked on the label, written in my mom, all caps, printing, said Kelly's accomplishments. So I didn't really think that buying the dollar store card <laughs> 
was an accomplishment exactly. I don't know if that's the thing I'm most proud of in my life, but I will say that my mom and I coming together, that was a Kelly and mom huge accomplishment. Thank you. If I don't see her each day, I miss her. Gee, what a thrill each time I kiss her. Believe me, I've got a case on Nancy with a laughing face. She takes the winter and she makes it summer And summer could take a few lessons from her Picture a tomboy in lace That's Nancy with a laughing face Well, that is almost all of this week's episode, folks. This is Frank Sinatra behind me now. And we just heard from Kelly Dunham. Kelly is actually a nurse and a former nun and a comedian. She does a lot of speaking to folks about using humor to get through tough times. Kind of like you just heard in her story that we call Thinking of You. But before the break, we heard Take Me Back to Cairo by Kareem Shukri, a pop hit in Egypt back in the early 60s. And that version was intercut with a remix by Mosika Band. And that followed Thomas McKean's story, The Pyramid Scheme, which was edited and sound designed by our own John LaSala. Don't forget about our February 4th show in San Francisco and our March 2nd show in Philly. You can find out more at wrist-show.com slash tour. And don't forget that there is so much bonus content over at patreon.com slash risk. Dozens and dozens of bonus stories, dozens and dozens of check-ins, interviews with storytellers, staff members, faculty members over at the Story Studio. We depend hugely on the financial support of the people who believe in what we do. So, we're so grateful to everyone who goes on over and becomes a member at patreon.com slash risk. We'll be right back. We're back. Well, that does it, folks. Next week, we will have brand new stories from Stephen Campbell and Lilibet Fleur. Until then, folks, today's the day. Take a risk. I swear to goodness You can't resist her Sorry for you She has no sister No angel could replace Nancy With a laughing 
Return to the Transformers. Load the prisoners! How are we gonna get out of this? By the skin of our teeth. I didn't know human teeth had skin. Oh. 